You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Hi, everybody. I'm Ken Fisher from Cozen O'Connor's New York office. And with me are Stuart Shorenstein, Katie Schwab, and Rose Christ, all government relations professionals in our New York office. And we're going to talk New York politics uh, right now uh, and try and get some interest going in this, because after the intensity of the Trump years, the election, the insurrection, and of course, overlaying it, the tragic circumstances of the pandemic, which has affected the whole world, but um, in a very major way here in, the, in New York City, and fortunately seems to have plateaued and perhaps starting to be uh, abated. It's a little hard to work up enthusiasm for the New York City mayor's race. But here we are. Bill de Blasio is in his uh, last year, uh, having served two terms as mayor following uh, Michael Bloomberg's 12 years and Rudy Giuliani's. And the drama level since Giuliani in the city has seems to have gone down quite a bit as, as well. So we're two months away from the primary, which is this year in June. Actually, early voting opens June 12th. That's a new phenomena in a New York City election. We also have something called ranked choice voting. We'll talk about that in a minute. And let's look at the polls, because there's nothing that politicians love more than a good poll. And what the poll shows, 60 days out from the election, two different polls, Siena and Quinnipiac, are that Christine Quinn and Anthony Weiner are the clear leaders. Bill de Blasio, 10, 11 percent. Well, wait a second. No, no, no. I'm sorry. That's my mistake. Those are the polls exactly two months before the 2013 election. And as we all know, the Wiener campaign imploded. Christine Quinn's campaign deflated. She had been the clear front runner. And out of the blue came an obscure uh, former councilman, public advocate, a guy named Bill de Blasio that nobody had given a shot to. And he became the mayor of the city of New York. So here we are eight years later, and the polls are absolutely clear that the two front runners are Andrew Yang and Eric Adams, with other candidates such as uh, McGuire, Wiley, um, Garcia, Donovan, trailing uh, Morales, trailing way behind. So let's start with that open-ended question. Do we trust the polls right now? Is Andrew Yang going to be the next mayor of New York? Here. I mean, I think that Andrew Yang got he's peaking out. His name recognition was really high in the beginning of the race. Everybody already knows him and sort of formulated an opinion of him. And I think all he has between now and the election is to lose voters. Right. I mean, he has gaff after gaff. And I think that people maybe who are inclined to support him will start to wonder whether they want to listen to the press cover his mistakes for the next four years or if they want a mayor who's actually ready to govern the city out of a crisis. So I think the polls are maybe a good snapshot of where we are right now, but that there's a lot of room to go between now and election day. Well, Rose, let me let me ask you a little bit about that, because I don't I can't remember a candidate for mayor having as bad a week as 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 Yang had. He 
seemed to have put his foot in his mouth in a number of different areas. And, and uh, But in every one of those instances, he dominated the headlines. Even if it was somebody attacking him, uh, whatever other political development there was that day, an endorsement or, or a policy statement from some other candidate got lost in the, lost in the shuffle. Um, do you think we're going to see an impact from that at, at some point that we haven't seen in the polls so far? I have to wonder if voters don't get fatigued from it, right? I mean, he's in the headlines week after week, but it's not for any particularly positive reason. I think his most ardent supporters are can con- continue to go to bat vocally for him. But I think that a lot of voters who maybe were inclined to give him a shot start to think to themselves, like, this doesn't look very good. And this is also not the kind of press that I want to, again, like read for the next four years. I mean, having said that, if anyone can fall upward, it's it's Andrew Yang. So, I mean... Well, he had a, a remarkable incident. He went to Stonewall Democratic Club. It's, 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 it is the major citywide uh, political club for the LGBT community. And he um, was not well received there. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I was obviously there for that meeting. Um, and um, he just came in with a total lack of understanding of the substance of the issues that LGBT voters and members of the club care about. And then he was pandering to uh, us in just like kind of a really distasteful way, talking about how he basically he has gay friends and he has gay staff as if that gives him like credibility with the community instead of talking about any work that he's done to engage LGBT voters historically. And so um, I think that you see that mistake made in other areas too. He's had a really bad week with women with a really truly cringeworthy video coming out where he's responding to questions that are really like obscene in nature. And instead of addressing um, the fact that they're totally wildly inappropriate and misogynistic, he laughs along with the jokes. I mean, I think at some point voters see these videos and they hear him fail to understand the gravitas of the role of mayor, and they start to say, like, this is not the guy we want to see in office. I think one of the the issues, Ken and and Rose, is whether or not um, you could say a lot of the things that Rose just said, all of which are correct and true, um, you could say them about Trump. And he made gaffe after gaffe and had the video come out, um, of uh, from NBC, if you'll recall, right before the election. And it didn't seem to impact the voters. So are New York City voters much more sophisticated? Uh, I think we're going to find out. Uh, in, in politics, you generally don't want to peak too soon. And there's no question that um, Yang came out of the gate and he's been the front runner. And can he go wire to wire in this race? Uh, Scott Stringer calls himself the great closer, uh, as he did against Elliot Spitzer uh, eight years ago when he ran for uh, controller. Um, uh, That's what remains to be seen. Uh, But uh, the press has certainly jumped on Yang. Uh, If they jump too much, voters might have some kind of Uh, sympathy for him. Uh, The political class has no use for Yang. He's not one of them and not one of the insiders. And uh, is that felt by, is there a great silent majority out there? And that's what this election 
is going to tell. It's also going to speak to the strength of the progressive movement. Uh, this is a the only race that is really going on in the country <clears throat> at this moment, uh, or that is of moment. And in June, uh, a lot of eyes will be focused on this, and uh, there will be a progressive versus mainstream battle going on uh, with splits between the two different um, views of the world. So, Stuart, I want to ask you a little bit more about Scott Stringer. You know him very well since the very beginning of his um, his uh, political uh, career, which has been basically his entire life since he was a he was a teenager. He was considered the inevitable candidate as the race uh, began before Yang uh, got into it, and um, it seemed that that the air had gone out of his balloon a little bit faster than than people uh, expected, but. But in the last week or so, he has scored major endorsements from the Working Families Party, from the United Federation of, of Teachers and, and others. He may not be getting the headlines, but he seems to have recaptured major parts, at least of the apparatus that he was expected to have going into the election. Do you think that, that his campaign is on track for where they want to be? Well, I think they want to be in first place uh, at the end of the race. Um, I think that uh, you have a lot of people running. Uh, Scott made a deliberate, intentional, uh, uh, strategic decision to cater and, and to appeal to the progressive left. And he rang up endorsements from a number of uh, elected officials. From the uh, from the progressive uh, left end of the Democratic Party, uh, that has um, left the gate open for others to come in, like a McGuire and a Donovan and and others, to try to seize the um, the centrist base that uh, Scott basically had when he uh, ran for uh, controller and when he ran for borough president. Um, many times in an election, uh, people take a look. They, they, they have their candidate, and then they are intrigued to take a look at others. But if they're not totally satisfied, they come back to uh, the horse in the race that they know and that they've rode time and time again. And I think that could be happening now with Scott. I think he's, he's weathered uh, the storm of of being below the radar, and I think he's uh, starting to climb into the in, into the well, public he, discussion much more. He's certainly the only one of the candidates where voters on a citywide basis have had the opportunity to vote for him before. But I want to ask um, Katie about a name that we haven't really talked much about so far, and that's Eric Adams. You are a Brooklyn resident. Eric Adams is your borough president, a, a job that most people outside of the city of New York don't really understand, but we in New York understand as the spokesperson for a particular part of the city and a platform to run for mayor. So Eric Adams is running number two in most polls. His personal narrative is different from the other candidates. His political posture is different from the other candidates. Make the case for Eric Adams to be the Democratic nominee, Katie. I think Eric Adams is running a very smart and interesting campaign, and he's doing, I would say, a good job of sort of 
threading that needle between being um, a, a liberal Democrat, a person who's interested in police reform, who's interested in progressive policies to bring resources and development to communities that have been underserved in the past, while at the same time, not being overtly anti-business, anti-development, or hostile to the police. And so I think, to me, what we're going to see in the next six weeks is um, an increased emphasis on these police reform issues. I think the fact that the city's budget will be adopted just shortly before the um, primary takes place, and last year's hottest issue in the budget deliberations was about defunding the police. So I think that those issues are coming to the fore, and I think that Eric really does a, maybe the best job of talking about reforms that need to be within made within the police department, accountability issues that need to be urgently addressed. And at the same time, as a former police officer, I think he um, gives the public that's very, very concerned about rising crime, increased number of shootings, and really diminished quality of life in many parts of the city. I think he gives the public assurances that he would be prepared and willing and able to take on those issues. So One of the things I, that may unfortunately work to his benefit is that it's well documented that incidents of shooting and sometimes other violent crimes tend to spike as the weather gets warmer, more people out on the street. Obviously, we're in a more complicated situation because of, of, of COVID this year. But it's also, I think, uh, part of the history of New York City mayoral elections that sometimes an event happens that completely transforms the race, something that you can't count on, you can't um, anticipate, you can't have the TV commercial in the can. In the case of Ed Koch, it was a shooting of a, of a uh, uh, young uh, African-American in, uh, in Queens, uh, Yusuf Hawkins. For Mike Bloomberg, despite all of his uh, spending, on his way to losing the mayoral election until the World Trade Center was, uh, was hit uh, in a terrorist uh, attack. And for, you know, for Bill de Blasio, it was the wiener sex scandals rearing their head one more time. Uh, and again, once more, again, transforming the race in a way that no one could have expected. So what what would you be doing if you're advising a candidate today? What would you think is 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 the thing that could happen that's, you know, that might change the dynamic of the race? And what would you be telling the candidate to do to get ready for it? Rosa, I saw you were nodding your head. Yeah, I mean, I think that we could have seen something like that happen depending on the outcome of the killing of George Floyd. That could have been something that would have happened that would have changed the dynamic of the race if the um, jury had gone a different direction. And I think that there is unfortunately a possibility that there could be another instance in New York where there is a bad confrontation or interaction between members of the NYPD and black and brown communities. And if there's something that's outrageous enough, that could certainly be the spark that changes the dynamic of the race. And if I were advising a mayoral candidate in anticipation of that potentially happening, which I'll just say with a big asterisk at the top, like I certainly hope that does not happen. But if it did, I would be saying that now is the moment to really be embracing the leaders in um, minority communities and um, building real substantive relationships and having a strong police reform platform. I don't think I've been 
to almost any conversations with mayoral candidates where police reform has not been at least a topic of conversation, even if that's not the focus of the discussion. And so I think that that finding a way to cut through the other candidates' uh, proposals to make yours the most clear and concise and most responsive to the you know, criminal justice reform community's demands is a way to set yourself apart and be well prepared to respond to something like that should it happen. Katie, if you were advising one of the candidates for mayor, what would be keeping you up at night? No, I couldn't agree more with Rose. I think that's exactly the kind of crisis that a mayoral candidate needs to be prepared for. And the only thing I would add on to that is that those types of crises just have such a tremendous spillover effect, right? They, they have an immediate impact in the communities where they take place. But then they also, because they're so newsworthy and because they incite people on both the left and the right, they tend to really impact business decisions. They impact people's decisions about where they want to live in the city. Is it such a such an important turning point right now, kind of in its recovery and its economic recovery after the pandemic? I think that all of those kind of decisions that are part of or those kind of issues that are part of each candidate's platform about small business recovery and getting people back into the offices and propping up the transit system again, they have to have a really integrated strategy so that they can talk the whole talk about New York City recovering as an entire city. It all really has to be woven together in a way that's credible and that speaks to the city as a whole and to everyone here. Stuart, there's an argument to be made, I think, that the this transformative moment um, actually occurred uh, uh, just over a year ago when uh, COVID-19 came to New York City, devastating impact, high death rates, hospitals backed up, um, a real crisis for New York. And, and But it's been a crisis in slow motion because it's continued right to today as, as we start to uh, loosen up the restrictions somewhat where infection rates are still stubbornly high in so many neighborhoods. How has COVID transformed sort of the political environment in New York? It, it, is, has, it, has it shifted or changed the issues? Has it, it certainly made it more difficult for, for candidates to campaign. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, retail politics has become much more difficult. Uh, rallies have not been able to be held, uh, which are a demonstration of support that you have. If you fill a room with 100 people or a stadium with 25,000 people, it sends different messages. Uh, and, and I think that was one of the things that you saw between Trump and Hillary uh, across the country. And people always scratched their head. How come there weren't rallies with all these people for Hillary when they were turning out for Trump? Uh, um, I think that the, uh, um, the one of the other danger flashpoints would be a resurgence of COVID that causes the economic um, recovery to uh, slow down again. That could be extremely problematic um, for all the candidates to have to deal with. And I, I think in dealing with the issues that Rosen and, and Katie outlined, which I agree with completely, um, I, I think candidates have to be nimble. Uh, they have to figure out um, who can they turn to for credibility in a crisis? Um, everyone has been turning to for blessings from uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Um, will he be the key person when, um, if, if there's another uh, um, Crown Heights, which was also a, um, 
an uh, unforeseen uh, kind of last minute uh, uh, disaster that struck the Dinkins campaign back in, um, in 1993. So uh, we, we, it, it's hard to predict the unknown. But speaking of unknown, the one thing that the polls have shown is that if the election were held today, unknown would win. And, and that's something very much to keep in mind. Uh, 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 there is a, a vast majority of people uh, out uh, in the voting electorate who haven't either made up their mind or more likely haven't paid attention. Uh, the inside politics, uh, which is written about by the political reporters and by uh, the people engaged in the political world, uh, is not necessarily representative of how the public feels. So and let's talk a little bit about that, um, and let's talk about the unknown. So you are three politically active, sophisticated consumers of, of political news. Um, this is what you live for. Um, there are 12 candidates on the ballot in the Democratic primary for mayor, 12 candidates, how many of them, without looking at your phones or your screens, how many of those candidates can you name? Just call out the names. Eight, ten. <laughs> no, who got, are they? Got Springer, Garcia, Adams, right? Morales, Wiley, McGuire, McGuire, and Donovan. Donovan, Art Chang, right? We've got Yang, Wheeler. On the Republican side? No, no, just Democrats. Oh, just okay. Democrats. All right, take that Curtis Sheila off our list. <laughs> but you've got nine so far. Paperboy, Paperboy Prince. Yep. <laughs> um, oh, it's going to be so insulting to the ones that we're not remembering. <laughs> well, I think there's, I, there's a guy named Wright. Mm -hmm. And then number one on the ballot, the first name, the first name that people will see when they go uh, and to uh, vote is Foldenauer. Who? Mm -hmm. Do okay. any of you know who Foldenauer is? I can Look, I admire anybody that, that puts themselves forth as a candidate for public office, exposes themselves to a comment, criticism, perhaps even uh, uh, ridicule. Um, they're all to be congratulated for their efforts. But I think the fact of the matter is, is that the chances uh, of one of them in the second tier um, emerging is is going to be difficult enough, let alone what I would consider to be the third tier candidates. So if we look at what can make somebody break out of the race, um, if it's not an incredible endorsement, you know, Barack Obama decides to endorse Sean Donovan because he was in his uh, cabinet. I'm not even sure that that would move that many voters in New York. You know, he's a Chicago guy. Um, if it isn't a dramatic event that none of us can predict, the only thing that a campaign can really count on is their ability to um, advance their client's uh, uh, position through paid advertising, through television, through mail, through uh, rallies and other things. And if we look at where the race stands today, where it stands today, um, Eric Adams is sitting on about $7.8 million in cash, Scott Stringer about $7.4 million, both of them having received more than $5 million 
from the taxpayers because of New York City's uh, uh, matching funds uh, program that's designed to reduce the influence of, uh, of special interests. Andrew Yang has just over $5 million of cash, although arguably he started fundraising much later than others. And a lot of his money is from people outside of New York and not matchable. Then you've got Ray McGuire. He is not participating in the public finance system. He's not constrained by the same limits. He doesn't get the subsidies. He has $3.6 million cash in hand, but there's also an independent committee that's out there um, uh, spending money on his behalf, and it's not entirely clear how much they, they have. Similarly, Sean Donovan has only $2 million, $2.1 million on cash, but there's another there's another uh, political action committee out there, primarily funded by his father, that's got a couple of million dollars to spend. But then we've got three women in the race, uh, three serious uh, women candidates in the race, Catherine Garcia, Maya Wiley, Diane Morales. Each of them has only about two and a half million dollars, including the matching funds. So are they, do they have a shot at being competitive? I think Morales certainly does. I mean, from I just think that the progressive left, people who are even more to the left than Scott Stringer are coalescing behind Morales. So I think that she might be one of those like upset candidates who doesn't spend a lot of money maybe on like traditional advertising, but you see a lot out on social media and you see out at a lot of in-person events. She's basically forgo gone doing any more Zoom events. She's on the streets, like going to in-person events. And rallies, I think that that could translate into people actually showing up and ranking her number one. Let me ask you this, Rose. Meyer Wiley was expected to be that person. She had worked in the de Blasio administration. She had been outspoken on police reform issues. She had been a commentator on one of the cable networks and had developed a little bit of a celebrity uh, following. Um, Diane Morales was the... CEO of a social service provider and basically not involved with politics uh, at all and now running as the anti-politician. Why is it that you think that that it's Morales that caught on with the younger progressive voters and not Wiley? I think it might have to do with personality as much as anything else. Like, for lack of a more sophisticated way to describe it, like Morales comes across as more fun. Like, I think that, like, there is, like, this desire for a lot of young voters for politics to get, both be serious, but also fun and engaging and have, like, this more lighthearted aspect of the way that you relate to the voters and relate to the issues. And I think Morales brings that to the table in a way that Maya Wiley hasn't. I'm, I'm not sure that there's really a much more substantive difference between their platforms. I think it you know, politics is as much about personality as it is about substance. And I think that that just might be the case here. I, I, th- I think, think that the Blasio Association has brought Maya down as well. I yeah. think that there's a lingering <laughs> association with the mayor that um, holds her back. And that has not been helpful. Yeah. I, sure. I also think that um, Wiley has spent far more money um, without results than any other candidate. Uh, she spent it on consultants. She spent it on staff. And that hasn't translated into a public facing. Uh, I also want to pick up on something Rose said. Uh, the only candidate, and, and um, 
I don't know uh, Morales as 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 well. Uh, the only candidate that's out there that seems to be having fun and enjoying himself is Yang, and I think that's part of his appeal. Uh, I think New Yorkers want to feel good again. They want to feel good about their city. They want to return to life, and they want to be upbeat and not just downbeat on the sky is falling. Uh, and I think that's been been a reason for him to to have appeal plus his name recognition. And of well, course, I'm sorry, finish what you say because I have a quite follow-up question for you. Because name recognition is what all these candidates are striving to get. So what's interesting to me is that, you know, they often say that mayor is a reaction to to the, the personality of the mayor that preceded them, right? That would kind of alternate in, in, uh, in what we're looking for in a, in a mayor, at least when it comes to style. Um, there's been a widespread perception that Bill de Blasio, although he spent his career as a political operative, has been rather inept when it comes to the politics and management of, uh, of the city, for better or worse, whether you agree with his politics, uh, you know, his policies or not. But I think that there was some view earlier uh, uh, last year that voters would be looking for the competence candidate. And in fact, that was one of Stringer's selling points was that he had been the city controller, most familiar with the issues, somebody who's done a good job as a you know career politician, but but good at his work. The other two competence candidates, uh, to some extent, were Catherine Garcia. She had been a former city commissioner, a go-to troubleshooter for de Blasio. Perhaps she's hurt a little bit by her association with him. Sean Donovan had been the housing commissioner of New York, secretary of housing for Obama, then the head of the budget office in the Obama administration, but not around New York a lot in the in the last uh, year. And then you've got McGuire, a senior corporate executive at, at Citibank, clearly uh, had um, shown his competence, at least in the in the private sector. But the notion of the competence candidate doesn't seem to be resonating with with voters. Is that? Is that because our expectations have been so lowered by the de Blasio years? Maybe, but I also think that in this lead up to where voters are really focusing on the primary, it's been a reaction to the Trump administration. I just believe the Trump presidency sucked all the air out of the room. And I actually think that Yang's kind of upbeat, positive approach, the reason why that's been resonating with New Yorkers is because they're so relieved that President Trump is gone. And now, as they're starting to focus, now that issue of competency, I think, may be what they'll start to drill down on a little bit more because they're seeing, you know, the quality of life, the management, the taxes, all those kinds of issues. Now they're starting to focus on that. But I believe that Yang's initial personality and, and his initial popularity could be attributed in many ways to that, just a sense of relief that somebody is out there in the public realm with a positive attitude. Yeah, and, and when you look back, you, you, you go back to Ed Koch, who said, let's try competence for a change. Uh, but he did it in a very, very upbeat manner. How am I doing? And he brought hope when the city was in desperate bankruptcy straits. Um, you look at Clinton. He was the man from hope. Obama, whose central message was hope. And, and I think that those have a resonance when times are very hard and times have been incredibly hard 
in New York. You just have to walk down any avenue in Manhattan, and I'm sure in the outer boroughs too, and see the storefronts that are closed. And, and this is a very, very difficult time, and it, it is mental as well as every other aspect that, that uh, needs to be uh, obtained. I also think that, Ken, that one of the things that the candidates are going to be striving for, and I and wonder, Rose and Katie, what you think, is they're all going to be going for the newspaper endorsements. Uh, what, what can change a game? What can give credibility to a candidacy? Um, how important? I mean, I think that they'll still be important. And just to go back for one second on the question of competency, right? Like, I think that that is still something that is important. And it's kind of like the counterpoint to the Yang optimism. And it's still, I mean, I think that still is what Scott Stringer is driving home the most, right? Like I think with his tagline maybe even is like ready on day one. Right. That's so he hasn't given up on that message. And I, I don't think that that he should. Right. I, I think that that'll still be something that'll resonate, especially if we continue to see gaps from other leading candidates that demonstrate a lack of understanding about how the city operates. That'll become more important when there's a, a contrast to compare it to. You know, what um, some of the insiders are saying to me is that the newspaper endorsements are speaking to different constituencies. The most influential historically has been the New York Times because it appeals to the better educated, more affluent voters. And Manhattan and Brownstone, Brooklyn and Forest Hills, although it has lost some of its clout over the years um, because of some confusion in the editorial board as to what their policies are and their focus more on, on national issues. But I'm told that the New York Times really wants to endorse a winner this year. <laughs> it's a refreshing change. Yeah, the, New York, the New York Post is is the paper of, of outer borough white voters, uh, outer borough Catholics, outer borough uh, Jewish uh, voters, um, to some extent a more Republican constituency that doesn't have as big a say in, uh, in New York City elections. And then you've got the Daily News, the New York's hometown paper, as it bills itself, which in some ways is the only newspaper that has any kind of significant impact when it comes to the African-American community, which, of course, is going to be uh, close to 30 percent of the, of the vote. But let's look back at what happened in the presidential race. The New York Times endorsed two candidates uh, for president. They couldn't, couldn't make up their mind. Uh, they didn't pick the winner uh, with either of them. But voters have something called ranked choice voting in New York. It's a confusing system. We could spend all day trying to figure out what it's going to mean and who it helps and whether voters are going to take advantage of it. But it basically means that you can pick more than one candidate. One is your prime favorite. And then you have other votes that if that person doesn't get 50 percent, um, uh, you know, votes can get distributed to other candidates until somebody does get 50 percent. So. If you were going to guess today, who are the newspapers going to endorse? Do you think they're going to endorse one candidate? Um, or do you think they're going to hedge their bets and endorse two candidates in the hopes that uh, they're improving their odds? And will that have a difference for the voters or will it just confuse things even more? Katie? I think because most of them endorsed ranked choice voting, that they will continue to you know, to play along and that they'll make an effort to make some ranked choice endorsements as well. I think it would be a little bit inconsistent for them not to do that. 
Um, I mean, we're all playing in this new universe and it is very unpredictable. And, and um, now that, you know, ranked choice voting, it seemed to me was full of promises, for example, that there wouldn't be any negative campaigning. That's proving not to be true. I, I think, you know, it's not playing out exactly the way its proponents said it would, but I do believe the newspapers will at least give it a shot this time. Stuart, given the the reverberation that the Black Lives Matter movement has had in corporate America and corporations um, trying very hard to demonstrate their own commitments to social justice, can you foresee the New York Times endorsing a white male like Scott Stringer or Sean Donovan? I, I can I can see that I can see the case being made. Um, uh, the Times has been going more and more progressive, and so a candidate that would have appeal like Scott on that end of the spectrum, I think, is certainly possible. I do agree with Katie that uh, when when the Times makes an endorsement, they usually talk about all the different candidates or the, 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 the main candidates in the race. And it may well be that as they talk about the ones that they don't endorse, that they say that our second choice would be. Um, that could well happen in this race. Um, I think the Times will give serious consideration to Ray McGuire. He is a uh, rags to riches story. He is a... Um, uh, comes across extremely bright, has some wonderful ideas, but also an upbeat attitude about a vision of a, of a much better, better city. There's people who focus on what's wrong and there's people who focus on what's right and, and how do you make it better. Um, uh, the, the one groups, the, the, the one set of groups that may have less impact in this race than usual, I think, could be the labor unions. They are diffused. They have all endorsed different candidates. Adams has collected his. Uh, Morales um, got uh, $11.99. Uh, Scott just got UFT. Uh, so you, you, have, um, you have all these uh, uh, major forces in terms of labor uh, boosting their respective um, uh, candidates that they endorse, but uh, there's no one labor movement here. Uh, so that, that'll that be interesting to see how that part plays out. Rose, are there endorsements that you think would, would change the nature of, of the race? I mean, I don't know how likely it is that Hillary Clinton, for example, would decide to, uh, uh, to get into it, but can you think of, Stuart mentioned Al Sharpton before, he's now a media figure, so he's got to be a little bit more careful about what he does overtly, although he's, you know, he did um, have uh, McGuire at his side when he went out to the uh, to the trial in uh, uh, a few days ago. What endorsement do you think would, would, would affect undecided voters right now? It's funny, what's coming to mind are only like the endorsements that would hurt candidates, not endorsements that would help them. I'm trying to think of like who could move the needle in a really positive direction for someone. And I, I not to make the conversation for him, but I, I am just blanking a little bit. Like I'm wondering how a de Blasio endorsement would impact a candidate, right? I think that probably hurts a candidate more than helps them at this point. Um, how about Andrew Cuomo? 
right? I can't, a Cuomo endorsement, I think hurts a candidate, not helps them at this point. These are the people that typically would come to mind, like if they would jump in the race and make a major endorsement that it would matter. Yeah. The people that typically I would say would matter would be like party leadership from the boroughs. So like if Greg Meeks or Keith Wright or Wright or one of the other borough leaders jumped in and then made an endorsement, I would typically say that matters, but I'm not even sure how much that moves the needle at this point. Um, Katie, what if what if what if Alex Rodriguez and J Lo could agree on a candidate? <laughs> The celebrities that people will think you're, you're behind you're behind the times and your celebrity gossip. A Rod and J Lo are no more. They've no, that's why I said Rose. That's why I said they had to agree. Together. I think it would be and a big story if they agreed on a candidate. If somebody could bring them together, that would prove they have real leadership skills. So that would be good. Yeah. So I, look, I certainly don't see our senators um making an endorsement or uh I, I think some of the um, congressional uh, uh, um, representatives uh, will make or have made endorsements, and and that is uh, helpful in terms of uh, various areas of the city. But I don't think that Obama gets in. I don't think Bloomberg gets in. I don't think a lot of the names that um, you would think about, I agree with uh, that Andrew Cuomo is not going to get into into this, uh, um, the, 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 the typical usual suspects, I think, are not going to be um, playing in this very large field. So I'm not going to put you on the spot by asking you here um, two months out, who is the Democratic nominee uh, going to be? But I, as we wrap up, I do want to ask you if, if there was one thing that you would want to hear um, the Democratic nominee for mayor, and, and given the registration um, uh, differentials, given the fact that there isn't a defining uh, wedge issue the way there had been uh, with Bloomberg and, and Giuliani, the likelihood is that the Democratic candidate will be the mayor. We'll know who that is when the ranked choice voting uh, is finished uh, sometime in July, we hope. But if there was one thing you'd like to hear the Democratic nominee for mayor say on the day after they have won the nomination, what would that be? Stuart? I think I'd like to hear them talk about um, the city coming together, that we are all in this uh, city together, and that uh, we need to understand that the business community is not the enemy of the city, it's the engine of the city. And I think that uh, there's been uh, uh, a lot of uh, diatribe against um, the business community, against capitalism. Wall Street has been a heartbeat. Real estate has been a heartbeat of the city. Um, tech is a heartbeat of the city. And I think that uh, uh, that's where jobs are created. That's where incomes are created. And that's where an ability for everyone to grow uh, remains. And if you drive people out, um, they won't be here to uh, provide the, um, the uh, gasoline for the engine. What about you, Rose? You're a leader in the progressive community. What would you like the next mayor of the city of New York to say to you as soon as that person has been nominated? I think that I want them to talk about how New York City has long been on the forefront of being an advocate for... Um, for progressive rights, for human rights, for civil rights, and how um, 
they're going to reinvest and sort of double down on that and while also ensuring that they create a landscape in which, as Stuart said, like the business community uh, can thrive. And I'm looking for someone who's ready to be the cheerleader for the resurgence of the city's tourism economy as we're coming out of COVID and, and really sort of like helping to, to dust things off and get back to business. Um, so that's what I'm looking for. Katie? I think I would say that New York is a resilient, historic, dynamic city. And for hundreds of years, people have made their home here to sort of unleash their talent and their skills and their sort of best selves, you know, in whatever fashion that might be. And so this, you know, this is the first day of our next step. And let's all come together to sort of rebuild the city in the best possible way. Well, regardless of who the next mayor is, the government relations professionals at Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies will be in there representing and advocating for their uh, for their clients. My thanks to Rose Chris, to Katie Schwab, to Stuart Shorenstein. I'm Ken Fisher. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.